Good morning, College Park. Today's passage will come from Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge what he sees or decide disputes by what he hears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the winged child shall put his hand into the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I hope you had a hopeful Christmas. And as a matter of fact, just in case you're not aware, this is the last Lord's Day of 2014, which means God's preserved us again for another year, right? And has something for us, and we are indeed grateful people. You know, a couple years ago at College Park, we started a program that we called a resident program. It's a pastoral resident program. It's a two-year program for uh, men who had graduated from theological education and wanted to get some experience in ministry. And so we uh, did some recruiting and working and have brought several men on board that have just been a delight to me and to the staff and to the church. And And one of the things we're privileged to do on occasion, and this is one of those occasions, is to allow them to preach the word to us, to be ministered by them. And as we were thinking of this resident program and starting it, we had a couple goals in mind. One, obviously, is to benefit the young men, to give them experience. And it's been successful in doing that. Secondly, it was to benefit the church, the people of God, the kingdom of God, and particularly College Park, so that we would be ministered to by them. And each one of our residents have specific areas in which they minister, and some of you have been exposed to them, and you, you know that they are gifted and that God's really used them with a heart for ministry. And then we've also had as a goal to fulfill what Paul said to Timothy in Second Timothy, and that is, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And we desire to have a staff, a pastoral staff, that isn't just doing our own thing, but are also giving our lives to others to replicate the ministry of the gospel. And so the resident program has just been delightful. And for me personally, I meet with these guys once a week, and it's just been fun to see their hearts and to spend time with them and to feel a little bit younger myself as well as another year clicks by in my life. So this morning, first service, we're privileged to have uh, Eric Swanson. He's going to be speaking to us. He's our newest resident, just started in 
August with his wife, and we're glad to have both of you guys here um, in ministry. And a couple things about him. He's a recent graduate of Southern Seminary, as recent as like two weeks ago. He got his MDiv, walked the aisle. He said they don't flip the tassel, but anyway, it was it's, congratulations, Eric. That's in order. Um, he's also a Michigan guy, and I'm not, but that's okay. And it's been interesting how many more Michigan people it seems like we have. One of the things that I thought was cool about, about Eric is that he developed a relationship with a quarterback at Michigan. I know you guys are all into quarterbacks and stuff. A guy named Kurt Cousins, and they did devotions together. And if, you, if you're into sports at all, Kurt Cousins now is quarterback at the Washington Redskins. And if you're not, that's all right. It was cool that you were able to do that in college. Uh, and then he's also, he ministers here in soul care and has a heart for people and a heart for people that are in struggles and has helped with our counseling. And I've prayed with Eric, and Eric, it's a privilege that you're able to be here this morning and minister God's word to us. So come up and do it with vigor. We've been praying for you, and I know God will use you. Church, let's go to the word in prayer. Father, we come to you today with thankful hearts during this Christmas season, the season of joy. We're thankful for time spent with family and friends, the time to relax and reflect upon everything that you've done for us. And most of all, we are so thankful for your son who came to this earth and saved us from our sins. Now, Father, as we look today at the promises of your future kingdom, we ask for eyes to see and ears to hear your word. Lord, remove distractions from our minds and our hearts so that we, we may hear you and you alone. Father, I also ask for your help for myself, making me a clear minister of your word this morning. And Lord, help us to see that our future home is our present hope, that all your promises will surely come to pass. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, good morning, College Park. Uh, it truly is a blessing to speak to you today. I um, hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. Uh, I love Christmas. Christmas is my favorite time uh, of the year. And this Christmas was especially wonderful uh, because Jessica and I, uh, we are newly married. We got married in uh, June, actually. So this is our first Christmas, and we get to start to make you know, new Christmas traditions uh, for our new family. You know, The first step in any Christmas tradition is, of course, the tree. We've got to get a real one. My wife's never had a real tree before, so we make sure we got one. So we got in the car, bundled up, and drove deep into the woods all the way to Home Depot. <laughs> now, we picked up a nice little six-foot tree, and, and I remember back, you know, when I was a kid, how setting up a real tree was kind of a pain in, in our home, and so I, I was kind of worried about it, but it was relatively painless to set up. Um, and the smell of that, that smell of pine you get every time you walk into um, my apartment or your home, Again, just says, oh yeah, it was all worth it. So glad I did it. And we picked out our favorite Christmas movies. Um, I made those little peanut butter cookies, you know, with the Hershey Kisses in the middle of them. Uh, I made them all myself. They're so good. Love them. Again, all these things, uh, all these little things about Christmas help us to create these Christmas memories, these these moments, these special memories and moments in time that sometimes you wish, oh, I just wish that that moment could last forever. You know, maybe for you it was a moment this year or a moment in past years when you see all your family together gathered around the table and everyone's just having a great, great time and you're like, oh, I just wish this could last for longer. Maybe it was a time when you've given somebody a gift and you saw in their face that they actually, truly loved it. You're like, oh, that was, 
that felt good. Or maybe it's when you're singing your favorite Christmas hymn. Um, hymns you're singing to the king. And all the struggles of this life just seem to fade in the face of Jesus. You know, you want that joy. You want that peace to keep going. We want the celebration to continue. And so we can experience some of those perfect moments and memories again and again. Well, thankfully, as Christians, we know that a time is coming. A time when we won't have to wait for Christmas to experience perfect moments and perfect memories. Because we will live in a perfect place with perfect people and a perfect king. As we come to our final section in our Advent passage, a section I know you've all been kind of eager to hear, I know I have. Okay, we see that the prophet Isaiah paints for us a wonderful picture of a time to come when perfect moments never end. A picture of a new home, a new Garden of Eden, a place where peace and justice reign. A day when the coming king, King Jesus, will make his kingdom known and he will sit on his throne for all to see and the world will know a peace it has not seen or experienced since the dawn of time. This passage we'll see today promises us that Jesus will one day remake the world and it will be perfect forever. I don't know about you, but that gets me stoked. That gets me pumped up. Here we go. But before we look again at this passage, um, we need to remember uh, the context surrounding it. Again, this beautiful picture of the age to come was spoken at a time when its hearers needed it most, when peace and harmony did not reign. You know, the people of God have been fractured for over 200 years into two kingdoms because of the greed of their king. You know, the kingdom of Israel to the north and the people of Judah to the south. And throughout these two centuries, each kingdom had been led astray by unjust kings and unruly leaders, men who decided to fear man rather than Yahweh. And during the time of Isaiah that we read, about 700 years before our first Christmas, both Israel and Judah are scared of this coming judgment that God was bringing upon them because of the nation of Assyria. And in the face of these coming armies, Israel, the northern kingdom, decided to trust the pagan nation of Syria in order to fight the Assyrians instead of trust Yahweh. And Isaiah, while in the south, Isaiah is pleading with King Ahaz, the king of Judah, to trust Yahweh rather than make a kind of a peace deal with Assyria that would actually end up compromising the integrity of God's people. And so as we look to Isaiah 11, we are hearing Isaiah's call to Ahaz and to the people of Judah to trust that God is faithful to his promises, and that one day he will bring heaven to earth and God will make everything right. He is trustworthy. That he will bring this righteous branch out of the stump of Jesse, out of the line of David. And this king that is coming will rule with perfect wisdom, perfect justice. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. And he and peace will reign for all of us to see. Again, this message that we read, this message of future hope, was meant to encourage this people of Judah and this king in the midst of crisis to trust Yahweh. And today, we should be encouraged because this king, he has come. And the promise of this future home should be our comfort today as well. So as we look at the kind of the trajectory of my message today, we're going to be in two parts. First, we're going to unpack, again, this wonderful picture, this, these scenes 
um, of these, these animals and this perfect promise of the age to come and kind of see the specific ways Christ will one day make everything perfect. And then I'm going to have us look and see how Christ has actually already brought some of those future glories to us today. So first, looking at the characteristics of this age to come, you know, what do we get to look forward to? You know, what should give us hope for today? But again, before I unpack all that, I need to address the when. I know you're all wondering, when is this going to happen? When is this happening? Well, this, this future, uh, you know, all this future place, you know, when is it going down? Many godly men, again, disagree, agree to disagree on whether this event uh, that Isaiah kind of refers to either happens in the new heavens and the new earth, kind of the, at the end of the, end of the age, in Revelation 20, uh, 21 and 22, we read about this, or if it's part of a kind of a thousand year millennial reign that is mentioned um, in Revelation 20. Now, I don't think it's helpful for me to dive into eschatological debates, this being my first sermon here. Um, but what I will say definitively is that the event, these events will happen. Christ is coming back to put an end to Satan's sin and death. And Isaiah is giving us a small glimpse into the future glory awaiting those who trust in the Messiah. Now, with that being said, uh, let's look at Isaiah's, each of Isaiah's pictures of this age to come and draw four conclusions about the place and what this peace is going to look like and how it will be brought about. So first we see that in the age to come, enemies, number one, enemies are now made friends. Look at verse six. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. So when describing this messianic reign, Isaiah tells us that wolves, kind of the mortal enemies of sheep, will one day dwell together in peace. Now you can imagine that, you know, the picture of Jesus holding that little, that little baby lamb. Just imagine that little lamb, you know, just hanging out with a ravenous wolf. You know, it just doesn't really connect with us. It doesn't make any sense. You know, Isaiah you know, also says that leopards are going to lie down, you know, maybe take naps next to helpless young goats, along with lions and baby cows. You know, the most fearsome predators of this earth are living at peace with their prey. Now again, biblical scholars will disagree on whether these animals are meant to represent, you know, maybe powerful nations like the Assyrians that are coming, you know, who are about to attack the smaller nations of Judah, you know, maybe the baby lamb Judah, or if they're describing a literal scene of leopards and young goats lying down together. Now, with prophetic and poetic language, it's often difficult to know if Isaiah wants us to make these one-to-one correlations or connections. So in these cases, it's, it's wise for us not to allegorize everything, but rather we should look forward to the, you know, look at these major themes of each of these descriptions. You know, what's, what's the main point in each of these scenes that Isaiah is trying to convey to Judah, to us and us, to us today? And I think in this particular scene, Isaiah is telling us that in the age to come, relationships that seem impossible to reconcile will one day come together. You know, there will be no more predator or prey, no more weak no, uh, versus strong. You know, there will be no reason to fight and devour one another in the coming age. You know, there will be no rich or poor distinctions, but everyone will live at peace with one another. You know, we will, be, we will see peace between Democrats and Republicans, vegans and carnivores, extroverts and introverts, Wolverines and Spartans. Oh, man. As a Spartan, that's super hard for me to even fathom, but it's going to happen. You know, cults and patriots. 
And yes, yes, even Hoosiers and Boilermakers will live at peace with one another for all eternity. There will be no more hostility, you know, no more broken relationships, no more broken families. In Christ's coming kingdom, we will all dwell together in peace. Furthermore, look, look with me at the bottom of verse 6. It says, and a little child shall lead them. Now, Isaiah gives us this image that makes me think of, you know, a scene out of, you know, where the wild things are, that children's storybook. You know, where a child with seemingly large, dangerous animals, they're just hanging out or, and he's leading them, like has them as pets and is completely unafraid. This scene should also bring your mind back to a time in the Garden of Eden. The last time we kind of saw this picture was in Genesis chapter 2. Where God gives Adam full dominion over the animals as he names them, each one of them. You know, living in complete peace with, with, the, with the animal kingdom. In Isaiah's vision, we get to look forward to a new age. And a new type of Eden that is restored with no hostility. No predatory nature is found in nature. No animal versus animal, no you know, humans versus animals. You know, shalom will reign because the prince of peace is ruling. That's number one. Secondly, nature will look completely different in the age to come. Look at verse 7. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Again, Isaiah is reinforcing this idea that enemies in this coming world will be at peace with one another. You know, he gives us a picture of cows and bears sharing a meal together and their young kind of playing together. And when I read this, I can't help but think, you know, of, you know, baby bears and baby cows, you know, out in the backyard, hanging out, you know, swinging on the swing sets, lying down the slides together, while mama bear and papa bear and Mr. Cow and Mrs. Cow kind of sit down for a nice dinner of grass and straw. You know, it's, it's an image for us that doesn't make any sense in this world, you know, but it's because our future home is not of this world. The very fabric of nature itself will be changed. You know, a bear's natural instinct is not to eat with a cow, but to eat a cow. Just like a wolf's instinct is not to lie down with a lamb, but to eat one. But in this coming age, the natural instincts are altered so that peace is found on every corner of the earth. Again, this image again brings us, our minds back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, look at Genesis 1, uh, verse 30. It says, And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Now again, this might not literally mean that lions are going to eat straw uh, with the oxen in this new age to come. But I do think that Isaiah is making a point to us. That nature as we know it today will look completely different, dramatically different in our future home. And we know from Romans 8 that not only were humans affected by the curse of sin, but also creation. You know, creation is groaning, just waiting, eagerly waiting to be remade. In our future home, this curse will be lifted and everything will be as it was meant to be in the beginning. Number three, thirdly, we see that in the age to come, we will dwell also securely and the fear of harm and death are completely vanquished. Look at verse eight and the top of verse nine with me. 
It says, The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Now, I don't know how many of you in central Indiana have run into cobra holes or adder's dens, um, but we can kind of understand the point that Isaiah is trying to make here. These places are not safe for children in this world. But in the age to come, we will neither fear harm nor even the possibility of harm because it will be completely erased. Maybe an example that's more closer to home. Let's just say, you know, can you imagine allowing your child uh, or just uh, hang out in the middle of I-65 with no fear at all? Or maybe, I like this picture, maybe you think of a, a, a different kind of zoo. A zoo with just one fence. There's one fence that kind of circles all the way around. And you kind of walk in, and all the, all the animals are just kind of roaming around. It's like you go up there, pet the lion, you know, pet, pet the bear, you know, hang out with the cobra, without any fear of harm at all. Like that's how dramatic the shift is going to be when Christ fully restores his kingdom. I think more personally, I think many of us long for, for this day um, because this life, this body, uh, has caused you much pain because you're battling an illness or cancer or you know somebody who's battling cancer or disease. But God promises us that in this future home that we'll be free from pain or even the threat of death. You will receive a new body, an imperishable one. This hit home for me a couple weeks ago. My wife and I uh, drove down to Louisville and Chattanooga just to see some old friends. And we sat down with this couple just next to their Christmas tree and they talked about um, her husband's battle with a really rare form of adrenal cancer. Um, They reflected on a previous Christmas, how, again, they were just hoping that the the chemo would would work to shrink the tumor so they could even operate on it. And even though they were able to operate uh, operate on this tumor, it was a success. You know, he still wakes, he tells us, he still wakes every, every morning just thinking about the cancer that still is in his lungs and still in his abdomen. And whether or not he'll see his three young girls even make it to high school. We also prayed over my friend who is a 25-year-old guy. You look at him, he looks like a completely healthy guy. But he's actually battling a debilitating form of MS. You know, he wakes up every morning with pain in his arms and his legs and terrible migraines. He can't even attend his seminary classes, so he has to take everything online. And he has these tremors that he can't even type. The effects of this broken world are very real in the lives of these godly men. But they cling to the truth and the promise that God has not abandoned them in their suffering. And that one day they will live safely on God's holy mountain. In this holy mountain, God's holy mountain, there will be no need for flu shots or aspirin. No need to lock our doors or to set up security system. There will be no, no need to no worry or fear or anything. Because in this city... As the Apostle John writes, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Again, in this new kingdom, God's holy mountain, again, it's, it's not just a designated space where God meets his people like he did on Mount Sinai or when Jesus was transfigured on this Mount of Transfiguration, not just the one holy place, but the entire earth will be covered with His holiness and God's glory will be manifested for all to see in every corner of the earth. We won't have to fear anything 
Because we'll live in God's house, God's city, God's holy mountain. And lastly, number four, we see that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Look at verse 9, the second part of verse 9. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Again, this is how it's all going to be brought about. You know, if you can remember our context, again, Isaiah is telling Ahaz, that, you know, the king of Judah, this future kingdom of God will be filled with all the knowledge of the Lord, and its future king will de- delight in this knowledge of God. Yet if we look to 2 Kings 16, we see the story of Ahaz. Ahaz does not follow the knowledge of God that Isaiah is giving him, but instead bribes the king of Assyria to not destroy Judah, and they become kind of a vassal state of Assyria. So Ahaz trades the knowledge of God that Isaiah gives him for knowledge, uh, for human wisdom instead. Church, we need to remember that Isaiah's picture of peace, the shalom, is not brought about through man's wisdom at all, but through the knowledge of the Lord that one day will cover the seas. This new kingdom is for those who know the Lord and are known by him. And when Christ's kingdom comes, my friends, my friend won't have to wake up with pain in his arms and his legs anymore. Yet when this day comes, when God brings his holy mountain fully to earth, my friend won't have to worry about the cancer in his lungs and whether or not it's spreading or not. When this kingdom comes, the battle with sin that you've been dealing with for for years will finally be over. And all the promises that you've clung to amidst great suffering and pain will be fulfilled and we will live with Jesus. Amen? Lord, haste that day. I can't wait for that day. I was when I when I read about these things and I think about the age to come, I I can't help but think about this childhood song. Maybe you guys know it. You know the heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face, cause heaven is a wonderful, heaven is a wonderful, heaven is a wonderful place. I want to go there. And for those who have placed their faith in this root of Jesse that we read about, our faith will be made sight, and we will get to go there. Amen. You know, I read these passages, and I, and I get super excited about them, and I can't wait for that day. But then I ask myself, what about, what do I do now? You know, are we just to, to daydream about heaven to escape this pain of life? You know, is this life... A purgatory of sorts. You know, is, is life here on earth like a, like a traffic jam? It's backed up for miles. You're just not, not even inching forward. And you're just like, I just want to go home. <laughs> like, like, just get me home. I don't want to be here any longer. I just want to go home. You know, if, if dying is gain, then why then do we live? And I think Isaiah's prophecies and these scenes of heaven and the scenes that we see in the book of Revelation... Again, we're not meant just to be mere mental escapes from this world. They did not intend for us to write books about our own personal stories about heaven or visions of what we think heaven's going to be like. These glimpses into the future, these pictures of this perfect peace, this perfect place, were meant to give the suffering children of God real hope for eternity, but also hope to face today. They point us to the root of Jesse, Jesus Christ, the risen one, who is not only the king of the world to come, but also of our world today. And he is walking alongside each and every one of us through the valleys of this life.
currently. Christians, we must not forget that Christ's life, death, and resurrection has brought some of these future glories already to earth. You know, God is sovereign of this world now, as he will be in the age to come. So then, how should Isaiah's picture of this age to come, you know, these ideas of heaven, how should they transform our lives today? You know, how can we experience maybe some of Christ's future kingdom today? Now, maybe many of you have heard the phrase, you know, the already, but not yet. Well, so then what's, what's the already of Christ's kingdom and what is not yet? You know, what, what future glory has Christ's life given us access to today? And in order to answer these questions, uh, we're going to unpack or, as I'd like to say, unwrap four gifts of heaven that are already ours in Christ Jesus. So this first gift, and the most important one, is number one, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is the first gift of Christ to his people. If you look back with me to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, we see that the first quality of this coming Messiah was that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him. The Spirit of Yahweh would rest upon this Messiah with all wisdom, with all understanding, with all counsel, with might, and the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We need to remember that that same spirit that rests upon Christ is the same spirit that he gives to us, that he gives to his people. In John 16, 7, Jesus is sitting around with his disciples and he tells them, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And we see this fulfilled in Acts, in Acts 2 at Pentecost. We see that the tongues of fire rest upon each one of the disciples, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And in Romans 8, 11, as Mark's going to talk about in the coming year, says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells within you. So Christ's salvation, our salvation in Jesus, is not just a future salvation, but a present one. And Jesus seals this for us by giving us an installment of heaven today, his Holy Spirit. And we see this again in Ephesians 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, so when you became a Christian... You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. But we need to remember that the Spirit is not just the guarantee of our salvation, but part of the salvation, part of the future glory that is already ours in Christ Jesus. You know, this gift is of the same nature, of the same kind of the thing to come. You know, we're not going to get a different Holy Spirit when we get to heaven. The same Holy Spirit that dwells within us today is the same Spirit we will live with forever. You know, the Spirit is not just the finger food at a party that just like, oh, this is kind of good, but I want the meal. It's like, no, He is the meal. He's part of the meal to come. And through the Spirit, we can experience all the gifts of heaven that Christ means for us to experience today. So that's the first gift, the most important one. The second gift of Christ that he gives us today is restored relationships. 
The only reason we get to dwell in this future promise of God, this future paradise, is because Christ has already destroyed this hostility that is between God and man. We often forget that the biggest obstacle between us in this age to come is not just time, but our own sin. You know, we look at Isaiah 11:6, and we saw this image of the wolf dwelling with the lamb. Two things naturally opposed to one another. And we know as believers that before we knew Christ, we were opposed to God. We were children of wrath, enemies of God, opposed to everything that was Christ before he made us friends. So Christ's past work on the cross satisfies God's wrath, you know, the wrath that was meant for us, and he gives us the right to become children of God for those who trust in him. Now, Jesus has destroyed the hostility that lay between God and man. And we see this fleshed out in Romans 5.10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So, friends, we don't have to wait to see if we're reconciled to God. We don't have to wait for heaven to figure out if we made it. The scripture proclaims that since Christ's work is a finished work, we can be reconciled to God today and for eternity. And since God has reconciled us to himself, he calls us to reconcile with one another. Church, I ask you, you know, how many of us are holding on to pride and to bitterness when Christ, through his spirit, has made it possible for you to reconcile with one another? Husbands and wives, why do you allow self-love to destroy your marriage when Christ has already clothed you with sacrificial love and humility? You know, are, you, are we just waiting for Christ to come back and avoiding talking to that person that you know you should talk to? You know, are you waiting for heaven to, to see God's peace flourish when he's given you his spirit to crucify your flesh today? You know, if God can reconcile children of wrath to himself how much more that we, by a spirit, can reconcile with one another. And church, I promise you, it happens. It happens all the time in this church. You know, being a part of the soul care team, I, I get a front row seat to see the spirit do its work in reconciling, you know, husbands and wives, people that you think, there's no way they're getting back together. And guess what? They do, because the spirit is in them and is reconciling everyone. In kind of a second part, uh, to this, to this gift of Christ, um, is not only that we can reconcile, you know, these hostile relationships together, but there is now a deeper bond, a deeper friendship between Christians that the world does not understand. An example of this, we were, uh, it's only by providence that this guy is actually here today, but I had a friend in college, uh, who was completely different than me. He was a music, music major. I don't think he saw a whole football game until college. Uh, we're very, very different people, but we met in this Bible study and we start talking and we share this bond of Christ that no one, like you, you, you would never put us together, but because of Christ, we come together and he stood at my wedding this year and he's here today by God's providence. It just shows you that because we have the Holy Spirit, you can be friends with anybody. You know, it doesn't matter what common interests you have. You could just be friends with them. So that I ask you, you know, look at the people around you, you know, like you may not know anything about that person, but if they know the Lord, you have everything in common with them. You can encourage one another of the hope that we have in Christ. And guess what? You're going to spend eternity with them. So you might as well get to know them now. 
So that was the second gift, you know, these reconciled relationships and deeper ones that we get to experience. And this third gift of heaven from Christ is a changed nature. Look at verse 7. Isaiah paints for us a picture of lions and oxen eating together and their young playing together. You know, we see this scene is very strange because it's completely against their nature to do so. God would have to recreate the lion from the inside out in order for the scene to come true. And similarly, as Christians, we must recognize that something truly radical has happened inside of us. And if we know our Bibles, we know that there is nothing good in us um, that was not put there already by the Lord. So then, you know, why, why then do we choose others over ourselves? You know, why do we care for the poor and the brokenhearted? It's not because we are in and of ourselves good, but God has recreated us from the inside out. He's given us a new nature, a new heart. We see this in Ezekiel 36. When God says, I will give you a new heart and I will and I give you a new spirit and I will put that I'll, and I'll put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Many of you remember this day very clearly, the day that you got a new heart. You know, one day you wanted to do evil and the next day you wanted to do good. You know, Paul talks about this and says, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And there's anybody that can explain to you the, this nature change that you experience as Paul, a guy that one day was killing Christians and now is making one after he met Jesus. So we get these new desires, new, this new nature from Christ, this gift. Then I ask you, Christian, are you following these new desires? Are you listening to the Spirit? Or are you listening to the world? Are you striving for holiness? Or are you simply sitting on the sidelines of life, waiting for Christ to come back? J.C. Ryle, uh, he's an Anglican bishop in the late 1800s, wrote a book called Holiness. It's one of the most impactful books I've ever read in my entire life. And he makes this observation. Most men hope to go to heaven when they die, but few, it may be feared, take the trouble to consider whether they would enjoy heaven if they got there. Heaven is essentially a holy place. Its inhabitants are all holy. Its occupations are all holy. To be really happy in heaven, it is clear and plain that we must be somewhat trained and made ready for heaven while we are here on earth. We must be saints before we die if we are to be saints afterward in glory. It is common to hear people saying on their deathbeds, I only want the Lord to forgive me my sins and then take me to rest. But those who say such things forget that the rest of heaven would be utterly useless if he had no heart to enjoy it. So again, Ryle is not saying that you have to earn your salvation, but he's challenging us to pursue holiness today with all our hearts. And how can we expect to enjoy heaven, a completely holy place, if we are not pursuing holiness today? But I want you again to take heart, Christians, even if you feel convicted now, uh, and you want to, you know you should be pursuing holiness more, Christ also gives us this promise that he's sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He is faithful to complete the work he started in you. I just want you to know, friends, do you know that what you do today matters? The suffering that you go through, the way you deal with suffering, the way you deal with sin matters because there is an eternity. Many of you know this, this poem. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done 
for Christ will last. And lastly, this fourth gift of heaven is the power to say no to sin and to see death as gain. In verses 8 and 9, Isaiah gives us again this picture of a child playing over, you know, a seemingly very dangerous terrain. You know, a place where we think death is, is surely imminent. But we know in God's future kingdom, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear pain. We must remember, though, Christian, that today, Christ has crushed the power of sin and death in our lives. The Spirit gives us the ability to say no to sin today. And that we should remind ourselves that death does not have the final say. We see this in Romans 6, 9. That we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer had dominion over him. For death, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too also should consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Because Christ has imputed his life to yours, we know that death will not have the last word. So friends, as we think about these gifts of heaven, we think about the heaven to come. I just don't want you to ignore these, these moments, these moments in times where these little pieces of heaven have come to earth. Do not quench the Spirit, but walk by the Spirit. Do not neglect the fellowship of believers, but make use of the gifts of heaven today. When Satan, you know, when he tempts you to despair and tells you of this guilt within, look to Jesus and to know your sin is paid for. And you don't have to fear death. Church, be encouraged when you hear the knowledge of the Lord breaking in to this, into the hearts of new believers, into new tribes, into new tongues and nations every day. This is a sign that Christ, that he is reigning, and that will one day bring peace to all corners of the earth, and that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So in closing, I ask you, church, as you think about this age to come, the glory that is ours in Christ, how is this hope of heaven transforming your life today? Are you too comfortable in this world that is not your home? Have you placed your hope in the things of this world, in your good deeds, your wealth, your reputation? Or have you looked to the root of Jesse, the crucified and risen King of Kings, who now stands as a signal for all the peoples, and of him do the nations inquire, and oh, will his resting place be glorious. Let's pray. Father, we come before you uh, just super thankful for all that you've done for us in Christ. Lord, thank you so much that you've secured our hope for the future and our hope today. Father, help us to walk by your spirit even today, you know, choosing to restore relationships, choosing to walk by your spirit and living in love, joy, peace, and patience and kindness. God, thank you so much for your word and this picture of the age to come. Lord, haste today when our face has made sight. Come quickly, Lord. Amen. Amen. Eric, thank you. God bless you. Well done. My, uh, my heart was so blessed and was thinking, 
of uh, Peter's charge that in light of what's going to happen at the end of days, the Apostle Peter said this, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? I hope you want to be that kind of people because we're hearing that sermon today, that this week you'll be more godly, more holy, and you'll hasten the coming of the Lord by being the kind of people who live with the end in mind. So may God bless you, may his face shine upon you. Be godly and holy this week in light of the vision of Isaiah 11, all right? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.